Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 79. I am your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is one of the founders of Renegade Juggling, Mr. Tom Kidwell. Before I talk to Tom, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out about this great group of jugglers and their annual festival, this year to be held in El Paso, Texas, at juggle.org. A big shout out to Joey Alexander in Bristol, UK, and his new circus and juggling equipment store called Drop Everything. Good luck, Joey. Now, Drop Everything. Get ready to listen to Mr. Tom Welcome Kidwell. Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 79. My special guest, Mr. Tom Kidwell. Hi, Tom. Hi, Dan. Now, you're out in Santa Cruz, is that right? Yeah, located in Santa Cruz, California. Now, were you born in California? Where were you born, and uh, what was your early childhood like? Uh, I was actually born in San Diego, California, and I grew up in the Bay Area, living in Redwood City. And from Redwood City, I went to uh, high school there and Kenyatta College, and then I transferred to UCSC Santa Cruz, and that's actually where my interest in juggling really started. As you might know, the Flying Karamazovs also went to UCSC, and they were maybe a few years before me. Uh, I got there in 1974, and there was a uh, juggling group led by Brad Jackson, and we had a, a weekly juggling meeting, club passing, and juggling, and that's when we started a group called the Renegades of Gravity which was a uh, performing group. And some people you might know, Ken Martin was in it, Charlie Brown, and a few other people. And we performed in the dining halls, et cetera. And that's when I really was got interested in juggling and mostly in club passing. And how visible were the Karamazov brothers? Were they like doing shows? Were they uh, just a local phenomenon? Or they already started to uh, branch out and become the Karamazov brothers we know of today? They were like a local phenomenon because they did a lot of street shows in downtown Santa Cruz. So most people knew them. They were they were more in their street performing phase. Yeah, I haven't talked to any of the Karamazov brothers yet. Uh, I plan to talk to Tim first when I do Moisture Fest uh, next month. Were you pretty friendly with those guys, or did you kind of uh, just see them from a distance? Uh, no, we weren't that friendly with them, and they were like uh, a step above us, right? Mm -hmm. We were more like fans. But were they the first jugglers you saw? Like, what's, what's your first memory of juggling? So actually, the, where, the first time I got into, uh, really got interested in it is they, they used to have a fair called the Dickens Fair in San Francisco. And it was a Christmas fair that was also run in parallel with the Renaissance Fair. And uh, I had a job there working at the dance hall when I was in high school and also doing games. And there were some street performer jugglers there that I had met. And that's kind of when I started juggling in the, when I was in high school at the Dickens Fair. Now, where did you get the idea of renegades of gravity? I mean, were you just, did you feel that you were sort of outsiders or were you just sort of against gravity in general? No, so the way it all came about the name. So I started juggling in, uh, let's say, 1976 at the university. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until we went to the Santa Barbara Festival in 1981. That was the first IJA event that we went to. And we were already had the name Renegades, and it came from Renee, because Renee had this idea that, oh, we can't afford to pay to go to the festival, so we're going to renegade in. Meaning just sort of crash, crash with people and not pay for anything? Yeah, kind of like, you know, sneak in. You would be, <laughs> it would be like, we're, we're renegades, we're going to sneak into the festival or whatever. 
Now, when you went to this first festival in 81, were you selling any props at that time or was it just, just purely as a, a hobby juggling thing? No, at that time, we were like a group because that's when we were performing in the dining halls. So we kind of had a juggling group. And I was already making my first juggling clubs, but I didn't bring them to that event. The first actual event that we sold clubs at in the, at the IJA was in Purchase, New York in 1983. And what about your background led you to be interested in making props? Or is this something you made other objects or you always found yourself making things? What got you into sort of that angle of it? The way I got involved in it was that when I was in high school, they had a program in the Bay Area, in Bay Area high schools, which was called ROP, Regional Occupational Training. And at the high school I went to, they had a plastics technology um, class. And my last year in high school, I was the teaching assistant, assistant for plastic technology. So I was familiar with all kinds of plastic processing and uh, injection molding and blow molding and roto molding. I kind of knew about the general the general plastics technology because I'd taken that class for three or three years while I was in high school. So when I got to college, I actually studied geochemistry and in our juggling group at that time, we bought uh, Dubai juggling clubs because he was the main supplier at that. This is like about 1976 or 77. When I got my first set of juggling clubs, I was like, wow, these would be really easy to make myself. And so that was kind of the, what got it started. So what was the landscape like? You had Dubai, uh, I guess Juggle Bug was around back then. You had, really, you had, really the landscape then was, you had Jay Green. Jay Green. Who made, who, yeah, you had Jay Green. You had Brian Dubay, uh, you had Claude Crumley, he also made clubs, and another guy, and, and Dave Finnegan, and another guy, uh, Jamini, who, uh, his name was, uh, what's it, Rob Leith. And so the, the, there was, and there was no manufacturer in Europe that I knew of. And so it was pretty limited, really, because you could just really get clubs, as far as I knew at that time, I don't think Jay Green actually sold them to the public. I think if you knew him, you could buy him from a maybe. I'm not sure how that worked exactly. But our, my main source was Dubai. Now, do you think Jay Green, was he sort of uh, credited with creating the first plastic club? Is that the history of it? I, I believe that he was the first the idea of a rap candle that you have a bulb because prior to that, like prior to Jay Green is really Stu Reynolds and Stu Reynolds made fiberglass clubs. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the adaptation was, is that I think that one of the first guys made a combination of using a fiberglass body and a wrap handle and the wrap handle concept came up, I believe from Jay Green. But maybe he saw it from somewhere else. Who knows, right? And Jay Green's clubs were actually made with toy bowling pins. Like the, you know, you'd get a toy plastic bowling pin at a toy shop. And he'd cut off the end of the bowling pin and gallon it. And then he did the rock handle. Yeah, the problem with the Stu Reynolds fiberglass clubs were they were quite heavy. And the handles 
since they were had no tape or any kind of uh, padding, were awfully hard on the hands. Well, basically, he, Stu Reynolds was mentored by Harry Lynn. And so Stu's clubs were kind of like a modern version of a Harry Lynn club. When did they have the difference between the American club and the European club? Like the American had sort of the fat head, the fat body. And that's like what Stu Reynolds made. See, what it was is that the Dubé in 1976 introduced the American club. And that was basically a kind of like a copy of the Stu Reynolds club, except made out of plastic. Yeah. So that was in 1976. And I think at the same time, Dubé also made what he called the European club, which had the wrapped handle like Jay Green's. And they were much thinner. Yeah. Thinner. The original Dubai American was that really that really fat club like the Karamasov brothers use. Yeah. Then uh, when did Todd Smith come in the picture? Because I remember Todd Smith made an American club that Air Jazz used. So then also Jugglebug is also in at the same time as all these people. But Jugglebug was usually more like in the toy market than in like professional juggling. I think in the in the beginning. Well, they were sort of the cheapest option. They were the ones that a lot of people. You'd get first, then you realized, oh, these early aren't yeah. what I want to use. And then you'd quickly upgrade to a, a better club. Yeah, and then there was a couple other people. You remember there was a guy in the 80s, there was a guy, Ricker, that also made clubs. That was similar to a Dubai club where it's a roto-molded body with a wrapped handle. Yeah, the ones me and Barry got were from a guy named Lee Letchworth. Did you ever see those clubs? Yeah, the name of that company was uh, Genini. G-E-M-I-N-I, Gemini, Rob Letch. Oh, Rob Letch? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's Rob Letch. No, I think of Lee Letchworth. He made like a foam-injected club. Okay, so so then what happened, the next thing that happened, there was the Ricker. Ricker was like first made in 1986, but he never really caught on like Renegade did, but he was basically at the same time which was another kind of a copy of a uh, Dubai club. And then what happened is it wasn't until the early 1980s, Dubai also made the Air Flight Club, which was the thinner version of his first club, which was the Amero. And when did they start making the, the bean bags? Oh, I'm not too sure about that. But the next thing that happened, you were talking about that foam club. Yeah. That was like in 1991. No, it must have been before that, because me and Barry used those when we did the Renaissance Fair circuit. Yeah, maybe somebody else made them before then. Yeah, they weren't very readily available. They were just a kind of a small batch. And the problem with those is if you put them out in the sun... Were the ones you used called Soft Club? No, it wasn't like a Soft Club. Like they used, like, I know someone made some of those for combat juggling. I think Scott Sorensen now makes like a Soft Foam Club. Yeah, that's right, because there was a company called Reflection that made a, a soft club in 1991. It was foam around the wood dowels, right, all foam like the combat club. No, we used the ones, they, they were shaped kind of like the, the, the uh, Harry Lynn clubs, but they were made uh, of injectable, they were like foam injected and then covered with tape. I don't remember that one. Was it made by Lee Letchworth? Yeah, Lee Letchworth. Yeah, that's it. That's really early. That was made in 1978, I think. Yeah, I can say that's the clubs me and Barry bought basically for our first years on the Renaissance Fairs. It had a urethane bone. Yeah. They were decorated. Yeah, they were decorated. They looked like Harry Lynn clubs. They were very nice, old-fashioned looking. Yeah, I think that those clubs were made from like 1975 to 1981. When I started juggling, they were no longer available. Well, they didn't last. They, if you left them out in the sun... 
they start to swell up and get all lumpy. Uh-huh. And then they would, then the foam would start to crack inside of it. You actually could shake it. It had kind of a maracas kind of sound with the broken foam inside of it. So they didn't last. So really what happened, the first development for us is that when we first made our first juggling club and had enough production capacity, went to, we went to purchase New York to our first IJA festival. And in purchase New York, I think we brought like 100 juggling clubs, right? That was our first big batch that we brought. And right when we got to the festival, Nick Gatto came up to our table and he said, wow, I, what, what's the name of this company? You know, he introduced himself and uh, he hadn't really heard of us. He picked up one club and he said, oh, these are really nice. They just need to be about an inch and a half shorter. Do you have a shorter version? And we said, sure. How short do you want it? We'll make it for you right now, right? And so we made him a, a, a set of three clubs at that event. And then he made, which was our first big order. He ordered 50 clubs from us. And that was really what influenced us to start to sell them. Because before, we weren't really sure if it was a hobby or if it was a business. Did Nick want them short because uh, for Anthony? Or did he just think that yours were too long in general? He wanted them short for Anthony. Because at that time, I think Anthony was five years old about. And why do you think he ordered 50 of them? If you only had Anthony to provide for... Do you just want to make sure he had a never-ending supply? He said, why do you want so many? Because he said, maybe you'll go out of business. <laughs> right, right. Not realizing that it was just the start. And uh, was Anthony at that festival as well or just Nick? No, Anthony was at that festival as well. Now, you said 83, but did, did you go to your first uh, IJ in 81? Like that was in Santa Barbara. We went to our first IJ in Santa Barbara in 1981, but our first event where we sold clubs at was, when it was in 1983 in Purchase. Now, did you have a booth or did you also renegade the uh, the prop selling as well? No, we had booths. We were <laughs> legit then. <laughs> you were legit? And so then the next big step was in 1983, we sold our first batch of clubs to Nick. And what Nick wanted to do was Nick wanted Anthony to learn seven clubs. In 1984, we went to Las Vegas and with Nick, we designed the numbers club because that's the club that... Anthony used to learn seven clubs with. And then he transitioned from using, he used just the numbers club for training. And then he used a regular 95 millimeter club for doing seven clubs. I think he was one of the first performers to do seven clubs in a show regularly. The numbers clubs, they were different because they were thinner and lighter. Yeah, they were much thinner because the thing is, is he couldn't hold four clubs in one hand. So what he would do is he would hold three clubs like in a traditional stack in your hand, right? And then he would hang the fourth numbers club and he would throw it from like his, between his pinky and his ring finger. <laughs> and then he would make that first throw from there. Yeah, it didn't stack up like a normal four because his hands were so small. Yeah, he couldn't do a normal four stack. So he did like a three and then like mm-hmm. a pinky grip for the, uh, for the fourth one. 83... Did you have a whole supply of different props or just clubs? No, we just had one product, club, one club, the 95 millimeter club, and we had no other products. I think we had T-shirts. And so you're under the Renegade name. Uh, what was the basic response to the club? Did you sell out those hundred, or was Nick the only like big client? He was our only big client and first client. But what about the general response to the clubs, like just from the the convention goers? The convention goers were like, "Hmm, those are nice. I'm going to pick up a set of two Bay clubs." <laughs> 
And what did Dubé think about? I mean, did you did you sense that he was welcoming the competition, or did he like like having kind of a monopoly at the time? How do you how do he respond to you guys? I think he always responded to us as a threat. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, that was always my feeling, but he was never a very outgoing person, you know. Yeah, like you guys were more like a a part of the festivals. Did Club Renegade sort of start first? This is kind of what what happened is that our first festival was in 1981. And then basically we went to most every IJ festival since then until like in, you know, like in 2000 or something. And the main thing that we thought about the whole event was that we were anti-competition. Competitions were a poor format for juggling. Were you anti-competition because of the format or just just in general? In in general, we thought that juggling was not a sport. Mm -hmm. Right. It was yeah. it was a, there was like two trains of thought. There was Bill Giddis was one of the main, I guess, movers in the, in the IJ at that time. And his idea was that it should be an Olympic sport like gymnastics where you judge it or ice skating or something like that. Right. My opinion, and I think a lot of other people's opinion is that it was a more art form of performing art like painting or something. And you couldn't judge it with numbers. The first thing that happened that was was that at the showboat uh, in Las Vegas, at the showboat, I don't remember what year that was, we had a thing where we all dressed up in tuxedos and judged the mm -hmm. uh, competitions from the back. Do you remember that? I think that was 84, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And so, so that was in 1984. And that's when the group, like the renegade group, really coalesced. We had more people involved, right? And we, at that time, we also started another thing, which was called the Bayer's Banquet, which was a potluck dinner, which was done at the same time as the awards banquet of the IJA. And the reason we did that is because we thought that the awards banquet was too much competition-oriented and a little bit too highbrow. Yeah, that's something we don't have in any days. We used to have a banquet like that. There was sort of awards and... I think what happened is... The especially in San Jose, the beggar's bank was much bigger than the actual awards banquet. And that's the same year that we did the first Renegade show. And at that time, it was called Club Renegade. And the idea was like juggling club, it's Renegade Club, it's Club Renegade, which then kind of transitioned, the name kind of transitioned into the Renegade show. And so the first show was behind the, the gym in San Jose in 1986. Two of the main people that helped create it is uh, Robert Nelson and Buffalo Bill from the World Emergency Circus. They were like the first go-to MCs because the show was really kind of based on the MC. And then it was also a big influence was Nungayo was another one of the best MCs for the show. Now, did you know uh, Robert Nelson before this, or did he just kind of uh, step up? Were you, did you already know him as a performer? I, I knew him before that. I, re I knew him before it. I like proposed the idea to him that that's what we should do. The interesting thing was at the first show we did, we set up the stage behind the IJA, and we had no permission from the IJA to do it. And what they did is there was a, in the gym – Behind the gym is where we set up the stage, and there was a door where you could go from the from the gym to the stage, but the IJA wouldn't allow us to go through the door. 
So everybody had to go outside the gym and go around, <laughs> around the, the whole complex to go to the show. Because at that time, the IJA really was at odds with the kind of renegade faction of the festival. Well, there was like a couple of different factions, like you say. They were sort of more of a, I don't want to say uptight, middle-classy kind of vibe to some of it. And then they were like the renegades were more of like, I don't want to say the hippie vibe or the, the party people. I think that's right. I think that I would call it more like sportsman jugglers. You know, yeah. that they were like a sports bag and fairly conservative. And then there was more of the, you know, party, hippie or whatever element to it. Or I would say countercultural element. Yeah, it was just more, uh, some more kickback. Like it was just, it wasn't as seriously as some people took the competitions, or obviously also yeah. the the sort of politics of the IJ and the board at a certain point became kind of contentious. Yeah, I think that their focus was more on competition, and they had this aspiration to be in the Olympics, and it was more of a, a competition-driven thing that they wanted to have competitions and awards. And the other element was like recreational jugglers or more like artistic street performers, which didn't really fit into the model of the IJA at that time. I think the model was also very sort of family-friendly first. Like they definitely didn't want this element that what they wouldn't consider sort of PG-13. And the Renegades were never PG-13. Yeah, and they didn't want any, you know, like drinking beer and carrying on, right? And there was quite a lot of carrying on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so then what, what happened after that, so the, all this is kind of in a parallel time frame. In 1986 is also when the Hawaiian Vaudeville Festival started. I was an early participant in that. So in 1986 also is the first year of the Hawaiian Vaudeville Festival. Then two years later is the first, renegade show in the ejc in maastricht let's go to the hawaiian vaudeville thing first were you part of the the belly acres like there was a commune where jugglers got together to buy land were you part of that group yeah so i was in that group it was more like a collective than the commune because most people didn't live there they came once a year for the annual juggling festival so it was really a festival-based group and some people did live on the land, and that was like the home base for it. But really, the emphasis of the group was the juggling festival. Now, did you ever live in Hawaii yourself, or you just sort of were part of this collective? I built a house at Belly Acres, but I never lived there. I went there once a year for the juggling festival for the month of February and stayed in my house, but I never lived there at the time. I always lived in uh, Santa Cruz. I was like a festival organizer and on vacation. Those houses, were they called jungalos or is that something different? It was structured a little bit different. You could, uh, at the time, how, how it was set up is Graham Ellis originally bought the property and it was 11 acres of just pure jungle, uh, completely undeveloped. And we moved onto the property and we're holding the juggling festivals at an adjacent a uh, place called Kalani Hanua, which was kind of like a like a little kind of like jungle resort place or like a yoga retreat center kind of vibe to it, right? And so we'd hold the event there, and then we would camp out at um, our property, which was Belly Acres. And at that time, we were just staying in tents, and it was like a campground. 
And then it slowly got developed into two sectors. You could, you could buy a, a house site and build a house there, or you could pitch a tent. And then the, the tents got more and more elaborate. First, it was a platform, and then it had walls, and it had roof, and it had a little kitchen, and then it turned into what we call a jungalo. And so it was like, kind of like for temp, people would stay there for two or three weeks during the festival. And how many people were part of this initial group? And how big were these initial Hawaiian vaudeville festivals? The initial group there was, I think that the membership at its peak was about 30 people, and really probably active members, like 20. And uh, the festival was usually would draw around 200 participants. And initially was held at Kalani Hanua, and then when it became more popular, it was held at Spencer's Beach Park. Yeah, I never got out to that one. Uh, why did it now no longer going? At what point did it uh, disband? The, what happened is that the park system was letting us use, the, renting the whole park to us to hold the event. And we ran afoul with the administration, basically, because what, what the, the park was set up, there was no alcohol allowed, and they had a, a minimum require, a maximum requirement of how many people could be there. And we exceeded that, and we just got in trouble with the, uh, with the Parks and Recs Administration, which all culminated in a boating accident that we had where uh, some people were were on a catamaran and got blown out to sea and had to be rescued. And so the whole thing kind of collapsed at that point. And then we were no longer permitted to hold the event at Spencer's Beach Park. And so we tried to move it to, to Belly Acres. But what happened there is the weather is too bad. It rains too much on that side of the island. And at the same time, a lot of juggling events started being organized that were free, like the Portland Juggling Festival, the Santa Barbara Festival. There was a lot of uh, small Mondo Fest, I think, is starting then, maybe not yet. And all those events were free. So the business model of charging for a juggling event became less popular. Uh, Belly Acres still exists. Are there still jugglers out there, or has it kind of gone through a lot of different ownership? Once the festival stopped happening, it really kind of died out where there, there's uh, four or five people who live on the property, but they're not really jugglers. The most recent person who's an actual juggler is Waldo, moved back to uh, Belly Acres. Was he part of the original group, Waldo? Yeah, Woodhead and Waldo were part of the original group. And they always came to the juggling festivals, and they were like festival participants, but they didn't really live there. The only juggler that you might know that tried to live there is Charlie Brown. He was also part of the group. He tried to live there for a year, but it was really difficult because there was really no employment there. Yeah, he, he, he still works. He's out in, uh, in Washington State, Charlie. Yeah, outside of Portland. Let's go back to these early days of the Renegade shows. Uh, I think I remember the most was maybe the one in Denver. Was quite a quite a big one, I think. What what time did they become sort of appreciated by the IJ and kind of co opted by the IJ? Where you started doing them sort of with their permission and with their acceptance? Uh, I, I don't think that they ever really accepted it. <laughs> <laughs> In truth. They tolerated I it. Mean, I what, what happened? What happened is it became very popular, so it was something that you couldn't ignore. And at a certain point, 
exposed finally came around to the idea that it's probably smart to, to at least not fight it. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, they were like completely against it. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They, they, didn't, they thought that it was in poor taste. And at one point, they had sent us a letter that you couldn't use profanity in the show. And so then we had a big falling out with them. So for a few years, we didn't do it. But in, in the meantime, the um, EJC had a renegade show at all events. And most small festivals like the Santa Barbara Juggling Festival had a renegade show. The, you know, all these small events and internationally in Mexico, all over the world, they had this con- used the same concept. And they just called it the renegade show. And the concept was that Anybody can come up on stage and volunteer to perform. Right. So kind of a first come, first serve, like you put out a list and anybody who wants to perform can sign up. What it really was, was the introduction of a non-audition show at a juggling festival. Because prior to that, everybody was in a show, needed to know somebody or have some connection or be in a competition in order to be in the show or to be in the public show. And this was the first venue where, where like anybody could do anything. And you didn't, and you weren't vetted in any way. These first ones in Europe, did you take the idea out there or they just sort of did it on their own? Yeah. So originally what I did is I organized it. I was the main organizer of it. And the way it was organized initially is first I would find an MC to do the show. And then I would have a list at our table and get some people to sign up on the list. But every show I would always recruit at least three or four what I would call ringer acts that I know somebody who's good, who can do something. And I would actively recruit half the show. So the show would be half volunteers and half recruited in order to keep the quality level high enough. Because a lot of people wouldn't volunteer, but if you ask them, they would perform. That's a lot of performers. You, they they want to be asked. That's the ego. Yeah, if you asked them strong enough, they would do it for sure. They would say no at first, oh, I'm too tired or it's too <laughs> late or whatever. And then if you keep badgering them, they would like, okay, all right, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Put me on first. Yeah, that was put me on first. And what would you do for an act if they went too long or they weren't the quality? Didn't it become kind of audience driven as well? It did start to get audience driven. And we tried to really push back on that when, when they, used to, they used to have this thing called the clap where somebody was starting to really suck, you know, everybody would start clapping like a slow clap. <laughs> yeah. Clap the people off. That really started in Los Angeles and Nungaya was the main MC. And we really did that because we didn't want people to be discouraged from performing. Right. It became too much like a fear thing where they feared the audience. Right. Which is a bad setup. Yeah. It became kind of aggressive almost. Yeah. We totally discouraged that. And what the idea is, is if an act is bad and going too long, it's the job of the MC to come out and save them. Yeah. Not like, you know, yank them off stage. And the really good MCs could save an act. And that's what we really wanted the MC to do is like, if something's going long and lame, go up there and help them. Help them recover to be good and then get them off stage somehow gracefully. Now, are there any moments that you remember from these shows that kind of stand out, like uh, like particularly renegade, say, renegade moments? I would say the best renegade moment was the first show. I don't know if it was the first night, but it was in San Jose in one of the first shows. And Robert Nelson was the uh, 
was had these things called boffers. Mm-hmm. It was like a foam sword, right? Yeah, you could fight without hurting anybody. You could kind of hit them in the head. And and they had like these really goofy looking goggles that you wore for it. So they wouldn't <laughs> right. get hit in the eye, right? And so at one of the first, at the first shows, the San Jose State Police Department, the people who were on duty would come watch the show because of course they had nothing to do. They're like San Jose, they're like San Jose State University Police. And so they're, they would, they'd come to the renegade show behind the stage, right? Behind the gym. And Robert Nelson got a police officer to be one of the volunteers on the boffer battle, right? And so he gets this cop and this cop is really hilarious. So what he does, the first thing he does is he gets up there and, and Robert's really good at boffing. He just like nails him in the head or something. And so then what he does is he wipes the sword under his armpit, right? <laughs> the cop does this. Right. Then he comes after Robert, right? And Robert's freaking out, right? And it turns into a huge battle where Robert's beating the out of this cop with a boffer, right? And everybody's dying. <laughs> and then, so the sprinklers go on, the cop is beat up, and then the MC, I think it was Buffalo Bill, comes on and, all right, thank you, another night of Renegade, see you tomorrow night, the end of the show. When did Mark Fay get involved? Because I think some of, some of the most memorable for me was when he would MC with Robert Nelson. Yeah, he got, I'm not sure what year that is. He, a lot of times, co MC'd with Robert. The thing with Robert is Robert was a loose cannon. He could be good or he could be really bad, right? He could go off the rails. And so we were always like hesitant to have Robert as the MC, but he could be super funny. Yeah. We teamed him up with Mark Fay because then it was more consistent. Mark Fay could keep him under control or they both could go it was a little bit. Well, he also brought in kind of a danger element because Mark did like knife throwing and scorpions and all kinds of crazy stuff. The other thing is we didn't want it to, to do it in the gym. We always tried to do it in a bar initially, but it was very complicated to organize it, right? To have it in a bar setting. And some of the best renegade shows were in a bar setting. Yeah, because part, part of the atmosphere is, is the bar and the off-campus kind of feel of it. One of the most success, successful ones was in Montreal when the juggling festival, the IJ was in Montreal, and we had it on St. Catherine Street in a bar. That was really... That was a really memorable one. He also developed a crew around it that helped with the sound and everything. Uh, who are some of the people like behind the scenes at the Renegade shows? There was basically a whole team of people that helped. And like now it's basically Keith Bindlestiff has taken the mantle at the, at the IJA because I usually don't go to the IJA events anymore. They're usually in conflict with the EJC, which is more important for me to go to. And so he's taken over basically... Uh, for the last 10 years, I think, he's taken over the organization of it with Mark Hayward and Crash organize it now. Yeah. Well, when I did the festival in uh, Cedar Rapids, they were the guys. In the 80s and 90s, there was always a group of changing group of people who helped a lot. It wasn't just like we didn't just do it on our own. The main job that the Renegade, core Renegade group was, was to rent the lights, the stage, the sound, the PA and get that part organized. And then the rest of it was a little bit self-organized by volunteers. And did the IGA contribute like financially or what was their involvement at this point? Sometimes I could get them to. They would never contribute financially. They wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> and, and initially they wouldn't put it in the program. Right. 
Did they want uh, plausible deniability? Was that it? Yeah. And, and I remember, I don't remember what year it was, but I remember I got a report from somebody who was at the board meeting because they always had the board meeting at, during the event. And the commentary was, the renegades, they're just animals. <laughs> well, <laughs> they, they were animalistic. I don't know if you could just say they were just animals. It wasn't too far off the mark, but that's what that that I think that's what our relationship was. But now, of course, it's become like a you have to have it. Like it's an established part of pretty much every juggling festival. You know, a late night show. We just kept the name, but I think most people don't know what the name means or where it comes from. I go to some juggling festivals in Europe, right, and they have a renegade show. And if you ask somebody what's why is it called renegade, they have no idea. Well, they say because it's sort of like just the idea of the renegade itself is is. Uh... You know, not not of the norm, the renegade. It's the name of it, it kind of means open stage, I guess. But that's probably good for your your business overall, though, that you sort of come associated with this faction. No, it's always been good for the business. Let's go back to the business itself. What year did Iman get involved? Because isn't she a big part of it as well, Iman Lizaruzu? In 1991, I met Iman at a um, Oldenburg festival. No, actually, it's 1990 at Oldenburg. And I met her there... And then I met her subsequently at a Hawaii juggling festival and a few other events. And she was a uh, juggler and her father was the artistic director of the Bolshoi Ballet in Moscow. Hmm. Oh, I did not know that. He, when she was in grade school and middle school, she went to the Moscow Circus School because that was right next to the ballet. And so she learned juggling as a, as a kid because her father who was, taught her ballet but she didn't really she didn't really like ballet as much as she liked juggling so she would instead of going to ballet class with her father she would go to the um, Moscow Circus School and she learned juggling in kind of like Russian number style juggling like technical juggling she was a much better juggler than me as far as her skill level and uh, one of the first things that that we we came up with together was the hollow juggling ring like the right. solo ring and initially when the the initial ring she was like oh i have a great idea you know you should make a we should make a roto molded hollow ring because the other rings are so hard on your hands and she said you should make it one centimeter in diameter but i got mixed up and i made it one inch in diameter and so that was the first hollow ring was that one inch thick passing ring that we made, which then evolved into all the other hollow products, right? There was like the solo ring that all the, all those hollow rings and the hollow rings really changed ring passing because then it became uh, a transition prop where people would learn maybe to juggle balls and then maybe they would learn to pass rings and then move on to passing clubs, which was a little bit different than what had happened prior to that. And I think it helped advance club passing and make it more popular. And I think you're right about the rings, too, because I had a set of those because I didn't like the way the thin rings would cut into the webbing of my fingers, you know, between my thumb and my first finger. And so it made ring juggling much more popular. And then Iman also influenced a lot of other props. We usually co-designed a lot of different props because we were always trying to think of new products or something different or something new that was in the 90s but when it really took off was in 2009 Dawes 
his last name is Nyaskov, and he was worked for Ringling Brothers, and he had a group of jugglers, and they did club passing where they, they would kick the clubs off of a table. Hmm. Okay. There was a woman on standing on the middle of the table. There's maybe four or five people around the table, and they would kick the clubs off the table into each person's hand, kind of like instead of like passing it to him, they would kick it to him. And the clubs that were made for that, the mold got lost. Somehow the factory closed or something. So Stas contacted me and said, oh, I need a club with a flat bottom so that we can set it on the table and kick it for our routine, for our passing routine, which at the time was with Ringling Brothers, I believe. I agreed with them. We worked on this project and we came up with this club called the Flathead Club. I made the Flathead Club. They used it in their show. But really, they were the only ones that bought it. And so I was thinking, well, what else could I do with this Flathead Club? I said, well, the person to send it to, obviously, would be Jay Gilligan, right? He's the only yeah. other candidate. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, he was the only other potential customer, right? Sure, the weirder the better for Jay, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I sent him a sample. I said, hey, Jay, I just came up with this club for stars. Got a flat bottom. I don't know what it's good for. You know, it's good for kicking, right? Right. And then he immediately responded back. And he said, oh, you know what? We, we've just started this group. And we had a meeting with uh, Mr. Babash about some new products. We want to start a whole new line of products. What it was is like new shapes for juggling. Yeah. And they had approached... Eric Alberg and Jay and I think Luke Wilson all had approached Babosh and had a meeting and they had all these drawings. And Mr. Babosh was like, you guys are out of your mind. <laughs> he gave the cold shoulder, right? So then Eric sent me the, the drawings. I said, these are all great ideas. This is a brilliant idea. Let's do it. And I would say the main was Luke Wilson because Luke came up with the idea that there needs to be a fifth shape. And so the, the four shapes was rings, balls, clubs, rings, balls, clubs, and what's another most popular one anyway? Like a cigar box or something maybe? Yeah, like the fifth most popular shape that doesn't exist. And then, then at that time what happened is I bought a thing that's called a plastic welder. But yeah. what it does, you can weld plastic with it, kind of like a glue gun, but it's really strong and it, and it works. So so what I could do is I could cut any of the props that I made and weld it together and make like a working prototype with this welding gun. We made a lot of, a, a, of strange stuff. And, and it was also working with Wes Peden, who was in the group, and Tony Pezio and Patrick and a lot of like the, the best, the better jugglers, mostly the circus school in Sweden, who were the most kind of like creative jugglers and so we made all these prototypes like the goat head club which was two club bodies that were welded together and we made all <laughs> kinds of experimental stuff and we made the first eight ring at that time gotcha right and i would say that's one of the products that came out of that that became really popular was the eight ring that's used more for like manipulation than juggling kind of like more for illusions and so what it was is that jay is and the Holy Club, you know, the club with the hole in it. Yeah. Jay and also the jugglers in Sweden had moved in the direction of manipulation with juggling because a lot of even like club juggling had a lot of body contact 
was starting to be prevalent in 2010, where you would roll the club off your chin or off your chest or whatever. And that was like a, a European style that didn't exist in the U.S. at that time. Yeah, U.S. generally was, it was pretty straightforward. Like if you look at like Albert Lucas or Dick Franco as sort of the prototype American jugglers. Yeah, and this was more like, a, I think it was more of a French influence. I'll bet that some of the first people to do this body contact stuff were French jugglers. Uh, they had a more creative, non-competitive setting or a more artistic setting. And so it transitioned into a, a little bit, you know, using different props and using them in the context of body contact. And this is also occurring at the same time as a contact staff is starting to evolve. So it's like the fire movement is also starting at this same time. So another really big influence is YouTube started in 2010. So there was like a confluence of all these things of like this Swedes who wanted to do kind of new shapes and new styles, and then the ability to share it, which didn't exist before. That totally changed juggling. YouTube changed everything because then suddenly you could see different things that you would never see and, and things evolved much quicker. Like the styles evolved quicker. It was easier to see new things. And when did the LED props start becoming uh, popular? The first one to do LED props was KA, was Dario. In, I don't know if he was the first, but he was the first successful maker. He makes the he made Dario K8. He makes the RGB club and ball, and he was the most successful one, along with another company in Europe called Cosmos. And they started probably at the same time, like 2010 or, or in that time frame. Then it was copied by a lot of people in in the beginners market. Companies in the UK would make knockoffs of it and cheap stuff for for LED. Mm-hmm. And what really got it to become more popular was the start of the flow movement, which is kind of like the a spinoff from the fire movement of more like toy spinning and staff and dragon staff and all this kind of body contact juggling or manipulation. What about uh, the pixel poise? Those are quite d- dramatic. So the pixel poise thing started a little bit later because that was a little bit later technology. And those were both started by two Czech companies. And the whole pixel poise thing was a big advancement, more like TV remote control LED prop like K8 made. Because when they started pixel poise, especially Voitech from the company Lightrix, he was the first one to make pixel poi where the music is synchronized to the poi through a program that's similar to iMovie where you have the soundtrack and you have the image and you can synchronize the music. All the other LED props, you would just turn them on and maybe they would have a function like they would blink or they would fade or they would change colors, but they didn't interact directly with the music. I would say maybe 10 years ago was the first actual synchronized Props and then developed further because the Czech model of this synchronized pixel poi then moved into all of the props. Like you can get a Siri wheel that's synchronized to music. You can get a you know the Russian cue. Yeah, the big frame, the big metal frame that you spin around. Yeah, metal frame also comes in LED. It's like everything. 
that's really the direction that the LED is. And so then I've been developing with uh, light tricks and play juggling. We have a new juggling ball that also is fully synchronized to the music. And um, in this case, it's run from your phone. So it's like an app on your phone. Wow. Change the colors of the ball with your phone. And then you can, or kind of using it like a remote, or you can load programs that you program to music that synchronizes with the sound. And it can also be hooked up to a DMX box. So you can do it through the, like the theater. So, so the modern ones, you can use it like a light element. So that actually the computerized theater program turns on the balls, turns them off or whatever prop it is. And you can also use it for switches. So it gets really complicated because now everything can be programmed as a light. The prop becomes a light instrument in the computerized light soundboard of the theater. Do you think at a certain point, the technology, I don't want to say takes away from the artistry or the skill of juggling, but that you can make it appear as if you're doing a lot more than you're actually doing by using the technology? I, I personally think that it, that it doesn't have that much of a future because, well, I just think that it doesn't look that good because in juggling, you need to see the person. And once you yeah. go into a lot of this light, this LED stuff, when the person is out of the picture, well, then the, a lot of the interesting dance component or is no longer in the act. I think that it's good for a three-minute or two-minute routine, but it can't be the basis of a show. Well, like they had uh, Giangolissimo. Yeah, I mean, there are people that base a whole show on it. It's possible, and you can do it, and it's interesting. You're not going to see nice 10-minute cabaret acts with lights. It's not that aesthetic, and it's not that interesting because it's just like technology. It's like a light show. You can't really see what they're doing. Well, it's like I say, like the show in Europe uh, this last year with Giangolissimo, sometimes they would do something very simple, but the effects they put over it would make it seem a lot more elaborate. So I don't want to say it was cheating in a way, but it, it took away some of the skill level. That's a good example of it done very well. But yeah. the majority have not done that well, and I just think it doesn't read that good. Even if it's super fancy technology, it's just not that interesting for that long compared to regular traditional juggling act, in my opinion. There's no interaction with the audience from the performer's perspective, right? No, it's like a cruise ship. It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in my global act. Yeah, it's like a video game. You just turn it on and you watch it, but you can't see any <laughs> expression of the, of the performer. And there's no involvement with the audience. I find them good for, uh, for walk-arounds. I mean, I think that it has its place, but I don't think it's going to be a major impact on juggling because it's too boring. Now, do you think anything will be a major impact on juggling? Where do you see juggling kind of going in the future? Well, I, I think the more interesting stuff is like what West Peden is doing and, and some of the circus schools where it's more of a blend of manipulation with juggling, not just strictly toss juggling, but more of right. a blend between dancey kind of dance or body contact juggling so that it's more visually interesting. It's just that the, the, the classic numbers routine now has, is pretty seldom performed, you know, like balls, rings, clubs in a row, you know, three balls, right. four, five balls, three rings, four rings, five rings, you know, that type of a format. Most successful acts don't do that anymore. We're getting towards the end of the podcast. How about some advice about people selecting props? Like if you're new to juggling or you want to select a juggling club, 
what should you should you look for the the size of it compared to your own height or how would you choose a good club for a beginner or someone who wants to sort of get more advanced with club juggling so what what happened is for, especially in regards to clubs the first few models of clubs was like a renegade club and then there was a dubay club and dubay club and todd smith which were pretty similar and then what happened is that henry's actually basically copied the dimensionality of a renegade club like the dimension the top and the you know, the throat and the length of it you know like kind of in the general in general terms right. the general sizing of it henry's made a big influence in the market because juggling is much more popular in europe than in the u.s the french juggling market is bigger than the entire u.s market so it's much more popular the bigger brands and the more influential brands are all from Europe because it's such a huge market compared to the U.S. The U.S. is like dinky dinky compared to Europe. Henry's and Play Juggling are the main manufacturers of juggling clubs in the world. And they influence the market, but their clubs are almost all identical to each other in a lot of ways. And there's not that much difference between like a renegade club and a play club and a Henry's club. They're all fairly similar. And the main thing for a beginner is what quality level is he going to pick? Because if you spend 25 or $30 for a juggling club, it's going to be good quality. And if you go on Amazon and buy one for 10, it's going to be junk. That's really what it is. It doesn't really matter which brand so much. In, in my opinion, they're pretty similar, but advanced jugglers, have particular preferences. Once they get used to a type of club, they don't want to change brands or change slightly change the weight. They're fairly conservative in picking a club and sticking with it for their whole career. Pretty rare that they change unless the company goes out of business or something. Let's say you're a, a new ball juggler. Now, these Russian juggling balls, that's something, something that's come along like in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years or so. Like when we were starting, there was no, no such a thing as a Russian like half-filled uh, ball. Where that came out of is that came out of Kiev. And they were the first ones to come up with this concept of the Russian ball. And what, what the concept is, is that if the ball is partially filled, so a Russian ball is like a, a stage ball partially filled with sand or salt or glass or whatever. And the idea is that when it hits your hand, it has a lower center of gravity. And that lower center of gravity makes it easier to catch in theory because it doesn't like roll off your hand. It's a bit like catching a beanbag, but more exaggerated. A lot of people who are doing like numbers juggling, it makes it significantly easier. Some people say, I don't know if it's true, but it, it's easier to catch. So the good numbers jugglers, especially numbers jugglers and the good jugglers from Russia all use Russian balls. And they were fairly easy to make because what people would make them out of is they'd make them out of pool balls, you know, where you die like a kid's toy. You know, they have a big pool of balls and you jump into it like a swimming pool. Because they're already hollow. Yeah. Because yeah. they're hollow to begin so with. They would, so what, originally what people do is they buy those pool balls and they would just put a hole in them and partially fill them. And then they had juggling balls, but they didn't come in sizes. So it wasn't until recently and really the best, Russian ball maker is Rad Factor in Japan who makes all different. He has every size and it's not a pool ball, but it's specially made as a Russian ball. 
And it was the same thing with the Russian balls from Kiev are also not made as a juggling ball, but it was another ball as well. There's only a few manufacturers, Norwick, Norwick Juggling and Rad Factor, where they specially make the ball for juggling. It's not like an ad- adapted hollow plastic ball made for something else. That, especially in, uh, I would say in Japan, it basically took over the beanbag market because more people buy Russian balls by beanbags, I think, currently. So it was a big transition. The same in the U.S. It also lends itself to a certain style. Like if you look at like a Victor Key or someone who's doing like a lot of stalls or, or head balancing. Much easier to do a stall or a neck catch or whatever. And Victor Key was quite influential and nobody knew that he used Russian balls at the time. Right? Yeah. When he did his initial act, the first time I saw him, I was sitting in the stands with Nick Gatto and Victor Key was doing his act, you know, the original one from Circus Le was on the ground a lot with stage balls. I forget what the name of it is. And then Nick looks and says, hey, wait a minute. Those things are cheater balls. They got sand in the pocket. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Nick was appalled. It was like cheating. It was like a scam of some sort, right? Well, I wouldn't say a scam, but there's one move where like, he has the ball like in his eye almost or something. Anyway, <laughs> Nick Gatto was like appalled that it wasn't just pure skill. He's like, oh, now I know how he does it. And so it turns out that this whole Russian ball concept is pretty old. There was a lot of dispute among some people whether Rostelli's balls, some of them had partial sand. Because in, you know, in a lot of these old acts where they do like a balanced finish. Right, right. It's got some poles and some balls and he does like this balanced statue finish. A lot of those balls were partially filled with sand. So it's not like it was a new idea. It's an ancient right. idea. And it's more of like a magic trick. Like when they like when they balance three balls on top of each other. Yeah, exactly. It's a magic trick. And so the Russian ball wasn't really that much of an innovation. It was like it already existed. And the initial ones that were made were uh, from Kiev were filled with cornmeal. And they didn't have that much of like a strong Russian effect where it's really, now they make ones like with chromite or sand where it's really pronounced Russian effect. The original ones were pretty subtle as far as how yeah. much effect the ball had. It just depends on the style of the person. But most jugglers who've always juggled bean bags or stage balls usually don't like Russian balls if they're an experienced juggler. It's like a hard thing for them to transition. Well, if you grew up on lacrosse balls like I did, it's it's very different. Yeah, it's very different. I think it's about 90% hype. Is that it doesn't really make anything easier. It's just different. And But one, one thing that it does do is it forces you to throw flat. So with, with a Russian ball yeah. with a stand in the bottom, if you have any wrist rotation when you throw the ball, it will wobble in the air because of the weight of the sand. And so that forces people to throw with their hands flat, which improves their technique a lot. I think a lot of people get better with Russian balls because it forces their technique to be better. Not that the sand really has any effect. It just shows them that they're throwing with their, they're turning their wrist. Because you'll notice when you juggle, you don't turn your wrist. Well, with balls, you're not supposed to spin them off your fingers. And most people do have a habit, especially in their right hand, of spinning the ball, especially if they played baseball a lot. Right, right, right. <laughs> that habit of this little wrist rotation, as soon as you get Russian balls, it doesn't work anymore. You can't do that anymore. So it forces better 
form and everything. That's why I personally like them. And the other thing about a Russian ball, they're cheap and they're more durable than a typical beanbag. I wonder if you travel with them, if they want to cut them open, like, or, you know, see what's inside of them. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and, the, and the other big benefit of it is it doesn't roll. So yeah. it's, it's an advantage over a stage ball in that it doesn't roll on stage. And the other advantage over a beanbag is it looks brighter. It's visually better than a beanbag. Sometimes a beanbag can look a little washed out on stage. Yeah, and it also can look kind of kind of flabby. Yeah, it's basically the Russian ball looks like a stage ball, but juggles more like a beanbag. And it doesn't like bounce away like a silicone ball or a lacrosse ball when it hits. So it's yeah. more forgiving. It's like a, I would call it just like another kind of a beanbag almost. They do look a lot nicer. They have, they keep their shape and they have a good shine to them where yeah. a beanbag can get washed out looking. Visually, they look good. I would say that they captured half of the juggling ball market in the last five years. Interesting. Now, what about the progression of the Diablo? That seems to be like one of the few props that in my career has gone from like something you would toss high in the air or it whistled to becoming a real prop. That's kind of a long, complicated story. But the short version of that is that Diablo is much more popular in Taiwan and in Asia and in Japan and in Europe than it is in the U.S. So the typical American juggler was first introduced to Diablo kind of late in, in the game. The level of, of development of Diablos and performing of Diablos in Taiwan particularly is like the difference between like a three club juggler and a seven club juggler. They're just so much more advanced. Every year they have a Taiwanese uh, Diablo competition. It's just like mind blowing, incredible, right? What, they, what yeah. they can do. That whole thing was really the, the development started out. Europe's made the first like Circus Diablo and Babash made the Harlequin Diablo. But then that, that was in, I guess, the 1990s or something. But it completely got surpassed by Taiwan. And there's a company called Sundia in Taiwan that makes Diablos. And they make, like, the most advanced Diablos in the world. And they're all designed by Royal Yabe from Rad Factor. He's, like, the designer. And he was a Diabloist that worked in Circus Soleil in, in the 1990s. He was one of the first pioneer of advanced Diablo. And he came from a background, he was a yo-yo champion as a kid for yo-yos. And then he transitioned to Diablos. The whole development of them is pretty complicated and there's like a zillion different models now. And now they have a, a ball bearing version. Is that, is that an improvement to have the, the ball bearings? So what happened is originally it was fixed axle. Yeah. That means that the Diablo spins on the string. Right. In order for that to work out right, the center of the Diablo had to be pretty slippery so that yeah. it could spin longer. And then they got this idea of doing Excalibur. And what Excalibur is, is when the Diablo is instead of being parallel to the ground, you do it horizontally above your head. Right. So that now the Diablo and now the Diablo is on end. Yeah. Facing towards the on the end, facing towards the audience. Yeah crazy instead of the end facing towards the audience now you've turned it 90 degrees and that excalibur move led to all these kind of different kind of tricks and different manipulation and in order to do that you need to have a bearing and there was a company called spinablo 
who came up with like a really toy version of this that was supposedly to be easier for kids to learn, right? It was really like a toy. And yeah. that idea evolved because Royal Yabe hooked up, uh, co-developed with Sundia to advance that concept. And so now most modern Diablo acts cannot be done with a fixed axle. It's impossible. It's like uh, Alexis Levelon comes to mind as a guy who's really pushing the, the performance element of the Diablo. Yeah, it's just, it's just that you cannot do the tricks. You can't, yeah. With a fixed axle, you cannot do the same tricks that you do with a bearing axle. So all advanced, like Taiwanese advanced Diablo routines, all use a bearing axle, by and large. And it's just the old school people who do one Diablo or maybe <laughs> two where it doesn't matter. But I mean, in Taiwan, you have like 10-year-old kids doing five Diablo. Yeah. It's a whole different level of, of skill, and it's a long story of how it happened. But just to give you an idea of the market, in Taiwan, Sandia sells 2,000 Diablos a day. Whoa. Yeah, and I sell one Diablo a day, maybe on a good day. Hmm. <laughs> It's just completely different, and it's it, and it's a cultural difference. It's part of the culture. They learn it in school, you know. They, for the competition for Diablo in Taiwan, the winner gets a four-year scholarship to the university to study, study physical education. That's the prize. Wow. It's a different thing, and it's kind of a different market. You know, it's sponsored by Red Bull. It's like a big deal there. Yeah. What about Renegade now? Let's get back. One last little bit of a recap. You're approaching your 40th year as a company. Any plans to retire, to turn it over to someone else? Or are you going to take this to the next generation? No, I would never want to retire. I have the best job <laughs> in the world. You do have a good job. I think it's super fun. Me and Iman are always coming up with new stuff to create, and we have a million ideas, and we're working on all kinds of projects. What's coming up soon is the new Glowball that works from your phone, an app, Glowball, which should come out in the next month or two, we're just waiting for the Apple application process to go through so that you can get it on uh, Apple apps. And then the next thing is I'm working on an old school project with Tom Flaw. And what we're going to do is do a line of old school props, like all the old stuff, candles and sword balancing and all the wine bottle balancing and I'm making a new, I'm making a new mouth stick for all kinds of mouth stick manipulation. That's based off the Japanese mouth stick. It's kind of a different style. It, it turns out that the Rostelli was mentored by a Japanese guy and he, his mouth stick is kind of like a copy of it. And nobody really made mouth sticks for years. I think they're still an uncommon prop even now. So we're, we're doing a bunch of mouth stick stuff because we've made a mouth stick for ball spinning and for plate spinning, but it turns out it's really not the right design for more of the uh, Rastelli style of catching a ball in your mouth and doing more complicated balancing. And so that's going to be new. And I think that'll be a lot of spinoff from that. And what the idea is, is that we want to bring back more of the old vaudeville acts because the material that they used then was kind of better i think than what is currently being done and so the idea is to bring back the balance finish you know with the balance finish and some of these older routines i like that idea that's always stuff i've been attracted to as well so i'm yeah. looking forward to that 
And if you watch people perform it, the thing about it is that this old stuff, it works. It's a little bit different than like, you know, we come up with a new prop. It's like, is it going to work or isn't it going to work? This old stuff works. And so it's a lot less risk to spend time developing it because you know it works because these guys didn't do it if it didn't work. Yeah, you mean you mean work as far as performing it for an audience. It works for a crowd. Yeah, it works for an audience or they wouldn't do it. And if right. you see some of these, what made a big difference, in, in my opinion, is when Kane came out with his whole series of books, you know, do you know about those, like all those, I think he has like 15 volumes of historical juggling books. You know, they're like- Sir David Kane, everyone's favorite uh, historian. Yeah. If you look at all those books, and also if you look at Tom's book, The Antiquity mm-hmm. of Juggling, you see the same old props used over and over and over again. Most of these acts use similar props, and none of those props are currently available or used. And so what the idea is, is to bring that back and to try to bring back more of a vaudeville skill to juggling, because mostly it's balance related. If people want information about Renegades, uh, give us your website where people can come check out your products. You can check out our products at uh, www.renegadejuggling.com. But what's more interesting, maybe for a lot of people, especially for beginners, is that we have a at the bottom of our website, we have a how-to section, like how to select a Russian ball, how to select a juggling club, how to use Kevlar wick more like informational pages, uh, you know, what is the, all the different types of Diablos and all kinds of more informational pages so people who are new to juggling can research a topic and find out more about it. And if people want to make a pilgrimage to the uh, Renegade factory, do you have an open store there in Santa Cruz? And, and what are the hours out there? Uh, yeah, you can come visit us. And our hours are kind of flexible but if you came between like 11 o'clock and three most days were there but it's better to call first and it's also good to take a look at the website because we have a lot of products we have about 650 different juggling products they're not really on display and so it's good if you have an idea oh i want to look at this or that because we don't really have everything on display it's not like a store it's more like a assembly factory Well, Tom, thanks for taking some time to uh, talk with us on the Drop Everything podcast. I look forward to the old school props you're coming out with and all the innovations in the future from Renegade products. Say hi to Iman for me and all the gang out there at Renegades. And thanks for being on the podcast. Tom Kidwell of Renegade Jugglers. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 79, my conversation with Tom Kidwell. Thank you, Tom. Good luck with Renegade Juggling. Hope to see you at a festival in the near future. Speaking of festivals, find out about this year's IJA Festival by visiting our sponsor at juggle.org and find out about the great guests who are coming to El Paso, Texas this year at the IJA Festival. All right. Thanks, Tom. Drop everything except when you're juggling.